make sure you give uh, Hotam and Gio a special thank you. Um, they have come alongside us in this season as we uh, transition, um, and they are here. What time did you get here, Hotam? Seven in the morning. Uh, they are leading here this morning, and then they go right into their service right after hours. And then Gio and a few others, they stay after for uh, APOP, a place of praise, the third church that meets here. Uh, they stay for that in the afternoon. So a long day for them, and we're thankful um, for their willingness to serve, their humility, and really um, just just their passion for leading people in worship. So make sure you say uh, thank you to them as you're uh, as you see them this morning. Now, I just want to preface, uh, I believe everything in this book, everything from Genesis to Revelation. I believe that it is divinely inspired. It's God breathed, right? That, that is, I believe that it is revelation from God, not written to us, but written for us. Amen. Now, there are a lot of things that uh, in scripture that God plainly reveals to us, right? It doesn't take a Greek dictionary or um, commentaries and everything else. Like it's pretty plain to us, but there are other things that are relatively complex. Not that they're completely unknowable or anything else. Not that they're hidden, right? God has revealed them to us in his word. And yet they are somewhat complex, more difficult than some of the other things to understand. That being said, there are a lot of things that I don't know. A lot of things that I don't know in Scripture. A lot of things that, that I'm willing and, and really desire to learn. Um, something that I've dedicated my life to learning and teaching. All right, so we've been in Romans 9 for a little while. And like I said a few weeks ago, it's a gully washer, isn't it? All right, triumphal or triumphic. Yeah, triumphal. There we go. It was a high ending at the end of, end of Romans 8. I don't know which word is a word and which one isn't. I know triumphal is, but Romans 8 ended on a, on a high note, on a bang. Romans 9, however, it begins a, a bit low, right? It, it takes us into this gully washer. And we have covered really all the way to verse 14 to this point. And so I want to read that this morning. Open your Bibles with me, if you will. Romans 9, 14 through 18 is where we'll be, and then we'll get started. When you have it, say have it. All right, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's pray. Father, we know that as your word has gone out, that it will not return void. We know that by your spirit, God, you work in the hearts and the minds of your people. We know that you draw sinners to yourself unto salvation. God, we trust that 
that truth, that it will not return void. It will accomplish its purpose. So, Father, we pray that this morning, as your word has gone out, that it will accomplish its purpose, and that it will not return void. Lord, we ask uh, that you would illuminate this text to us, that you would give us understanding and discernment, uh, that you would quicken our minds and hearts to understand your word this morning, ultimately so that we might glorify you, that we might uh, serve faithfully as your people. Lord, we ask all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. So Paul starts in the same way that he's been starting repeatedly throughout this letter, and that's with a question, with a question. He says, what shall we say then? Now, very clearly and very naturally, right, this question, it comes from what he just covered last week, verses 6 through 13, and I'm just going to read it. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the, of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had, not, or had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And there, what we said is that the, the immediate occasion for his question in verse 14, it springs from, from this argument in verses 6 through 13. He's just reminded his Jewish readers, right? He's just reminded them that God has sovereignly chosen people all throughout human history to be uh, children of the promise, to continue or to be heirs of his covenantal and salvific promises, Right, we, we can't separate the promises from this covenantal and salvific love. We just can't. They're, they are inseparable, period, point blank. Right? They're, they're not just promises that the Messiah will come through them. They're more than that. They are much more significant than that, and we cannot ignore that reality. Right? So it's, it's this that he's, that he's saying. Right? God chose Isaac over Ishmael. They both descended from Abraham. And like we covered last week, Abraham had six other sons as well with his third wife, Keturah, Genesis 25. So what we see is that it's not all the descendants of Abraham. No Jew would argue that. But one, the one, Isaac, that God chose. And we said that there some Jews may have argued that, well, yeah, clearly it was Isaac over Ishmael. Clearly God chose Isaac over Ishmael because Ishmael's mother was an Egyptian. She wasn't of full Jewish blood, even though the nation of Israel hadn't been established yet. That's neither here nor there. Or they might say, well, you know what? Uh, God saw Ishmael's work because he was about 13 years older than Isaac. And because he saw his work, he didn't choose him because of that. He's a half-blood. He didn't choose him because of that. And, and he, uh, he had 13 years where God saw his heart and his work and everything else. Those two reasons are why God didn't choose him. And so Paul's like, 
okay, like I, I hear that and I see that, or I, I know that this is where we're going. So guess what? Here's another example. Two twins born by the same mother and father, Rebecca and Isaac, one generation after. Same time, Esau's a little bit ahead of Isaac, and they're twins, same parents. We can't use the half-blood argument. And, and what he says here in verse 11 is that God chose them, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Well, that's weird, isn't it? He's not looking at, at their works. He's not looking at their, their decisions or their hearts or uh, uh, anything that we might think. No, it was before they were born, before they had done either good or bad. That God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was nothing in the twins. It was everything in God. Nothing in the twins. That's what we're supposed to see. So God chose Jacob over Esau. And he chose Isaac then and Jacob to be children's or children's children is what I meant to say. Children of the promise, like we saw in verse eight. Now, the the argument that he's getting in front of here, what shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? Is the argument that God is unjust to choose people before they're born? Especially in our democratic and, and really sensitive uh, society. We think that, that God is subject to what we think is right and good and just. Now, that doesn't mean that he, he's unjust at all. No, what I'm saying is maybe his justice, maybe, maybe his justice is different than ours. Maybe in our fallen human minds and hearts, maybe he has a different idea of what is actually good and just. And let me ask you this. If he did, would he be right to do so? Absolutely. He is God and we are not. Now, Paul, here in verse 14, he denies in the strongest possible terms the idea that there's any injustice on God's part. He says, by no means. We've seen that earlier, and it's about 10 times in Paul's letter to the Romans. He, may uh, genomai in the Greek, the idea is no, 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 a thousand times no. Perish the thought. Forget about it, right? We, we covered that. Y'all remember, right? By no means. The strongest way, the strongest rejection. There, the, it didn't get any, uh, any more real um, in the Greek language. This was the strongest way to reject something. By no means. Perish the thought. Forget about it. No, no, no. A thousand times No. So like we saw last week, Paul, he provides two explanations. The first begins in verse 15. It says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. A few things here. Notice four begins that verse. Four indicates that there's an explanation about to follow. And it's related to what preceded, right? So four indicates an explanation, but he also, for he says, not he said, but says. Is that a little weird to you? Right? He's, he didn't say it to Moses right there in front of Paul. No, he said it about 3,400 years ago. 
and he still uses the present tense. And what that should indicate to us is that what God has said at any point in history, he's still saying today. God does not change, right? His word does not change either. So he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is an enduring principle. This has always been the case, this first explanation, the second explanation as well, but for he says. In that, in Exodus, what we see, God, you know, Moses says, who, who am I supposed to tell, you know, the people that, that sent me? Who, who am I supposed to tell them who sent me? And, and God says, I am who I am. He's self-existent. He, he wasn't voted in and he'll never be voted out. He is God and we are not. He doesn't need us. He wants us. He, he didn't need to create us to be, to be holy, righteous, and just, to be eternal, um, omniscient, ever-present, and omnipotent. Um, he, he didn't need to do that. He's self-existent. I am who I am. I don't need you. He created us and everything else because he wanted to. Anyway, so he, he goes on, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, this is a, it's a quote from Exodus 33, 19, and what I won't do is bore you with the context, although I know many of you are here for that, but a 30,000-foot view here till we get to the passage, right? Moses is on top of Mount Sinai receiving the, the uh, two tablets of testimony or the law from God, and down there at the bottom, his... Uh, his brother, Aaron, the high priest, he's leading the people, the impatient people in idol worship. Moses is up there getting the law from God. Aaron's down there leading a party, dancing around a golden calf. As if it was the, as if it was the one true God, right? This is a problem. Moses come de- comes down and he's like, whoa, this is messed up, absolutely messed up. And in response to that great apostasy, in response to their idolatry, God commands that about 3,000 men be put to death, Exodus 32, 28. Now, God would have been perfectly just if he killed everybody who worshiped the golden calf, which was the entire nation. He would have been perfectly just in doing that. They, uh, they were worshiping another God. He would have been perfectly just in executing all of them, but he chose 3,000. And this was a warning to the others. This was, uh, it was to preserve his, his witness nation, this nation through whom the Messiah would come, through whom the gospel uh, would be brought from. So God would be just in killing all of them, but he spared 3,000. Now the next day, Exodus 32, 30, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses was horrified. He was horrified at the fact that the people did this. So he made intercession for the people. And in reply to Moses's additional plea, Moses is pleading with God. He's interceding on behalf of the people. And this is his plea. God gave Moses this assurance, right? He's not going to depart from Israel. He's not going to depart from this nation. Uh, He's going to continue to guide them into the promised land, and he will not forsake them. This is what he says in Exodus 33, 18 and 19. Moses says, 
uh, please show me your glory. And he, that is Yahweh, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is, this is the, well, you don't see it here, gracious and compassion and mercy, right? The words are a little switched up, but in the uh, Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, this is a word-for-word match, word-for-word match. And what that indicates or should tell us is that Paul is citing this for purpose just like he does everywhere else, right? It does not change. This is an, an example and it's an enduring principle for us. It is the same. It has always been this way. This self-existing God creator, sustainer, and redeemer of the universe, has and always will reserve the right to sovereignly choose whomever he wills. Amen? He does not reserve that to man. He's not influenced by any external factors. He is self-existent. He's not waiting for your vote. He reserves that right, and he never offers it to you. So he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses, it's not up to you. Thank you for your plea. Thank you for your intercession. That I, I understand that you're, you're beginning to learn who I am, but it, it's on me. It's not on you. I'm not influenced by your external factors. So his his preserving the people, his sparing the people, continuing to guide and protect them. It was purely reflected by his mercy and his grace. He is free to bestow mercy and compassion on whomever he wishes and to condemn or save whomever he sees fit. Now, those two words, mercy and compassion, are important. They're generally synonymous here in this context, mercy, compassion. But mercy, it refers primarily to action. Mercy refers primarily to action, whereas compassion, it refers to the feeling or attitude behind that action, the disposition behind the mercy, the, the attitude behind the action. So out of compassion, God takes mercy, mercy being that action. Now, something that you and I need to understand, no human being deserves God's mercy. The sooner that we can realize that, I think that the easier time that we'll begin uh, to understand this, like we won't be struggling over this. No human being deserves God's mercy. Not a single one. Right? All of mankind, in fact, deserves God's judgment. So if God chooses to have mercy on some and to condemn others, there, there is no injustice on his part because no one deserves God's mercy. This is why we can celebrate God's mercy and grace as recipients of his mercy and grace, amen? Because we didn't deserve it. This is why we get bored with God's mercy and grace. This is why we get bored with hearing the gospel over and over again because we believe the lie that we somehow deserved it. Brothers and sisters, no human being deserves God's mercy. John Stott said this, the wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy, in neither case is God unjust. 
If therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. This antinomy contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve, but it is consistent with scripture, history, and experience. End quote. If you are in Christ, all who are ever in Christ, they have never deserved it. God didn't look down the annals of time and, and, and see a foreseen decision or foreseen faith. No, he chose. You or anybody who's ever been in the kingdom of heaven, who has ever been in Christ, who has ever been part of God's people before they had done anything either good or bad. And it was not based on works, amen? Now, the implication is here in verse 16. Implication in verse 16, he says, so then. Right, if you and me are having a conversation and you make point, 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 and then you say, so then. This is the implication from what he has just said. So then. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The implication from this enduring principle is that God is free, that he is sovereignly, or that he sovereignly and freely chooses to show mercy and compassion to some and withhold it from others. He is God and we are not. He is free to do that. This means that it does not depend. It does not depend on human will or exertion or works, uh, literally their um, human will or, or running. Is, is the Greek there, right? It, it doesn't depend on human will or exertion or your, your spiritual efforts or endeavors, like your, your spiritual effort, right? It, it does not depend on those things, but on God who has mercy because he is God and we are not. So what's the it at the beginning of verse 16? So then it depends. Well, what is it? Well, clearly here it refers to God's bestowal of mercy, his giving of mercy to some, right? It's not ascribed at all. Like verse 16 gives no credit to human choice. As a matter of fact, it says, but it does not depend. So then it, it depends not on human will. It doesn't depend on your will. Nobody wills themselves to heaven or your works, Nobody works their way into heaven, but on God. So again, this, like in the clearest possible terms, we, we can try. This is where we try to start, you know, the contortionist act around what God clearly reveals here in verse 16. No, like, don't do that. Sit here, just look at it very plainly. It, it's not written in code for a reason. It depends not on human will, right? It, any human will or any effort, it is fundamentally imposing. Uh, to, to try to contort your way out of this, it is absolutely one of the most unnatural ways to read this passage. Unnatural ways to read this passage. So instead of contortion, let's just go through it. Amen? So, again... Before we go on, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find a good, uh, good way into this. Uh, but what we see here in verse 16 is that in the clearest possible terms, this verse, it excludes that man's will is the fundamental or initiating factor in God's salvific mercy. Your will, your effort is not 
the initiating factor in God's salvific mercy. Right, Ishmael, he desired the blessing, but he failed to receive it. And Esau ran for the blessing as well, or as, as it were. He worked for it, but he failed to receive it. Genesis 27, right? It is not man's choice or pursuit, but God's choice. God who initiates mercy for the sinner. Amen? God initiates mercy for the sinner, not man. See, this is, this is where, just so you know, my theology, my, my uh, exegesis, my hermeneutic, it begins with God and works down to men. It, it doesn't work for men and then up to God. Right? I, because I believe God is who he is, because it starts with God, that tells me what man is versus what man is and then working up to who God is. That's dangerous stuff. Avoid that. Work uh, from top to bottom. God is at the top on his throne, and we are there at the bottom. So salvation then is never initiated by human choice or merited by zealous human effort. It begins with God in his sovereign, gracious, and eternal will, and those who therefore receive God's mercy receive it solely by his grace. And apart from, so I can stop hitting this, but apart from God's merciful intervention, what we have already seen in this letter, Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, right? He, he's described the human condition, which you were a part of, apart from God's merciful intervention. Do you guys remember this? He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Underline that there. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That includes you and your, your super spiritual grandmother. Apart from God's merciful intervention, all of us find ourselves in this. Verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. This is the picture of mankind apart from God's merciful intervention. Then what we see is that our minds, our minds are defiled, right? We love what we should hate and we hate what we should Love. We saw in Romans 1, 18 through 32, that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Our, our thoughts become futile. Our hearts become dar are darkened. You remember, we said there and we saw in that section that God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up to increasing sin. We suppress it like the beach ball. We push it down and we hold it down. We know the truth. God has revealed the truth, but we suppress it. Absolutely. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that we do not accept the things of God, right? Apart from God's merciful intervention, the natural man does not accept the things of God. They are folly to us. We cannot understand them because we are spiritually discerned. Then 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So not only are we suppressing the truth, right? Not only are we unable to understand the things of the Spirit of God, but Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So apart from God's merciful intervention, our minds are defiled. What about our hearts? Well, our hearts are darkened. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus said in Mark 7, 21 and 22, for from within, or excuse me, for from within, out of the heart of man, 
come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, uh, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, slander, pride, or foolishness. Right, so what we said earlier when we discussed the will, the will is the tail of the dog. It's the caboose of the train. So the, the, the mind and the heart, they drive the will. Right, so if our mind is defiled and our hearts are darkened, what is the caboose of the train going to be? That means that our will will never move upward apart from God's merciful intervention. This is why Romans 3, when he said that no one is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks after God. There's no fear of God in their eyes. Our will, because our mind and our hearts are defiled and darkened, our will will never move upwards. It never will. Never. Not anybody in this room, not anybody ever. It never will, apart from God's merciful intervention. So your will, then, it simply chooses the desires that your heart and your mind already have on it. It, it will never choose contrary to it. Jesus says uh, that, that all who sin are slave to sin. And unless the sun sets you free, or when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Amen? In John 8, right? If, whoever sins is a slave to sin, but who the sun sets free is free indeed. The sun has to set you free. Until then, your will is a slave to sin. It, it, we're, we're not like, what we're doing is we're, we're compiling a case. What Paul does is just, it is brilliant. He's been, he's been layering this argument, th like chapter after chapter, which obviously those are uh, later editions. It, it, they're not original to Paul, the chapter and verse um, editions in the 16th century, but that's neither here nor there. Sorry about that. What My point is that throughout this letter, he's been building this case and he's been layering, layering it well. He's built a house and he's building this house so that when these ridiculous claims come against it, when our, when our fleshly minds and hearts try to attack this and, and try to contort around it and find our way into this house, we find ourselves very lost and locked out. Because He's doing this very well. So, so when he says, so then it depends not on human will, a biblical response would be, of, of course not. Of course not. Of course it doesn't depend on human will because no human wills to believe in Jesus Christ apart from the, the sovereign intervention of God. Of course not. Of course it doesn't depend on human will, Paul. No one's seeking for God. We, we read that already in Romans 3. We will only believe when God changes our will, and God must change our will by his sovereign will. But praise God for being rich in mercy and, and graciously initiating and intervening, changing our hearts and our minds and our wills through the gospel's effectual call. You remember we talked about that in Romans 8, this effectual call, right? Drawing sinners to himself. Praise God that instead of sinners seeking a Savior, there's a Savior. He sent His Son, the Savior, to seek sinners. Amen? Trust me. Like, it does not depend on human will. Yeah, yeah, no kidding, Paul. But let's not get that twisted. God sent His Son to seek sinners. He sends commissions 
every born-again believer to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. What does that mean? Pursue sinners. That's how God's, God works. He doesn't work the other way. It doesn't work. Man doesn't come towards him. He goes towards man. We see that all the way in the garden. I mean, all right, we got to keep going. Jesus, what, what we see in Hebrews 12.2, it says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We are not the author of our own faith. We simply exercise the faith that God has given us. And I want to give you a snapshot of this. Acts 16, turn to it real quick. Acts 16, Acts 16, not A-X-E. I don't know why I can't. It just sounds weird when I say it. Acts. Acts 16, starting in verse 13, it says this. And on the Sabbath day, we, who is that? That's Paul, Luke, Silas. We went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Multiple women are in view here. It's not one. There are multiple women here. The first part of verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Well, Marcus, didn't you just say that no one seeks after God? Well, first, that's what Paul said. And what we need to understand is that word or that phrase, worshiper of God, it refers to uncircumcised Gentiles who worship the God of Israel without adopting the customs or practices or, or associated with the Jews or Israel in any formal way. So that's just saying somebody who's acting like a Jew but isn't really a Jew, okay? Lydia, out of these multiple women, Lydia heard us. How did she hear us? Second part of verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. The Lord did this. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, what this implies is that Lydia was converted to Christ that day. There were multiple women in view in, in, view in this gathering when Paul was sharing the gospel and one, God opened one woman's heart there. God did that. Did Lydia make a choice? Yes, she did. She absolutely did. But she did only after God opened her heart to hear what God had said. Amen? And this is where we start the contortion. Now, Paul, he cites another passage, supporting passage in uh, the following verses. This time it's from... Exodus 9, 16, he says this in verse 17, look with me. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Right, this, it reinforces that the freedom, uh, the freedom of that God has to act as he wishes. It shows it now from a negative side. In, in the earlier example, it was from the positive side. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And I will, or excuse me, mercy on whom I have mercy and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. What was something that I forgot? Go back to verse 15. Just look at it. I will have mercy on whom? That's an individual, right? I don't know how or why I forgot this. We said in uh, 16 through 13, we said uh, really since the beginning of chapter 9 that this is referring to individuals. On whom? Not groups, not nations. On whom? Individual. On whom I will have mercy. Now of compassion on whom? Again, individual. Whom I have compassion. 
Now, again, back to verse 17, that second explanation, right? God's deliverance of the people or the nation of Israel from Egyptian slavery, it was central. It was very important to the Jews. It was very important to the nation of Israel, their history and everything else. There we see the Passover. There we see the crossing of the Red Sea. But God's deliverance of his people from uh, Egyptian slavery, it, it was very important in the, the protagonist, or excuse me, not the protagonist, but the antagonist in this story, right? The, the enemy, the evil person in this story that was against Moses, that was against God, it was Pharaoh. And Paul is citing here the word that God spoke to Pharaoh. He said, I will raise you up for this very purpose. I have raised you up for this very purpose. I, God, have raised you, Pharaoh, up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul's words, they confirm that God raised Pharaoh up for judgment. Don't fool yourself. God raised Pharaoh up for judgment. He allowed him to, to come into power, to be born into the family, to have all the successes and whatever. He didn't get cooties or chicken pox when he was a baby and, you know, perish because God had a purpose for his life. Look, Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. This is the word. Like democratic societies, modern sensibilities, check them at the door. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose. Why? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. How? Did he turn around and glorify God? Did he repent and, you know, give away all his money, just let the Israelites go? No, he resisted. He resisted in what we see is a series of miracles culminating with the crossing of the Red Sea, and he and all of his army were wiped out. God raised him up for this very purpose. His, uh, God's defeat, or really his freedom of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, it became an international illustration of God's supremacy, of his sovereignty, of his power, an international example an international illustration. You're like, man, you don't want to end up like Egypt. Don't mess with Israel. Then we see the conclusion of Paul's argument here in verse 18. He says, so then he has mercy on whomever, again, that's a singular term right there, on whomever he wills, not on whomever external influence, not whomever wills or whoever works or our spiritual effort or, or anything else. No, on a whomever he wills, he is God and we are not, and hardens whomever, again, singular term, he wills. So verse 18, it draws a conclusion from not just verse 17, but really from uh, the entire argument to this point, right? The, the impact that God's freedom has on human beings here in both a positive and a negative way. He has mercy on whomever, positive, and he hardens whomever he wills, negative. Both Moses and Pharaoh, remember what I said, no one deserves God's mercy. Both Moses and Pharaoh were sinners, right? Moses was a murderer. Do we remember that? Okay, I'd, we could go back and, and show it, but 
I'm hoping that you guys at least watch a, what was that? What's that animated movie? You know it, Paul. Prince of Egypt. <laughs> All right, so um, no one deserves God's mercy. Both Moses and Pharaoh were sinners, but God chose to show mercy to Moses and to harden Pharaoh. He chose to show mercy to Moses and to harden Pharaoh. So he is God and we are not. Why not have mercy on Pharaoh and harden Moses? Well, it's according to his will. Whatever we think is just, it's, it's not the same as what, well, I think we're realizing, and I hope that we're realizing that it may not be the same thing as what God thinks is just, and we may not understand it, it but what we cannot do is contort our way around Scripture to make God sensible to us. We cannot work our way from here to there. We have to start with God and work our way down. He is God and we are not. That word hardened, very important. Let's spend a minute here. Scleruno, scleruno in the Greek. It literally means to make something hard, but it's often figuratively used to uh, refer to making something stubborn or obstinate. And contextually here, it refers to being insensitive to God, his word, and his work. And the author of Exodus, who is presumably Moses, refers to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart over 20 times in Exodus 4 through 14, over 20 times. And what we see there when we dive into the context is that uh, at the beginning, the first instance of this hardening refers to God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Then what we see in other examples is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He initiated this hardening. It wasn't that Pharaoh was already a bad man or any more bad than anybody else. No, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Doesn't that sound familiar? Romans 1, 18 through 32, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. The only difference here and what we see here uh, ex ex expressly in uh, Pharaoh's story is that God initiated this hardening. Now, what this does not mean is that God created the unbelief in Pharaoh. What this does not mean is that God is responsible for Pharaoh's wickedness or evil or anybody else's wickedness or evil. No, that belongs to you. And he's going to cover that in the following verses, 19 uh, through 25. So stick with me next week. But th this word hardening, right, he, he removes his restraining grace. Have it your way, Pharaoh. And it's the wickedness of Pharaoh's own mind and heart that we see at work. It's his wickedness that we see. It, it's his or uh, mankind's wickedness that we see in Romans 1, 18 through 32. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. He's removing his restraining grace, removing his restraining grace, removing his restraining grace all the way until we are completely hardened and completely insensitive to his word, his work, and his will. So the reason that Pharaoh continued to resist God was because he was hardened. God started this, and he is God, and we are not. He has the right to do this. And we have no problem when it's Pharaoh. But we have every problem imagining that God would still do that today. How could God be just if he's hardening people today? Because he is God, and we are not. That's how.
How could Hitler rise to power? How could Hitler kill so many people? How could God allow that to happen? Because he is God and we are not. That's how. Would we dare say that, that Hitler was any less hardened than Pharaoh? Well, no, what we say is that he was just sinful, that he was wicked, he just was a terrible person, and we couldn't imagine that, that God would use him for a purpose. That God was somehow providentially and sovereignly over the entire situation. That God had a purpose for every life lost and every person in there who played a part in that. So here's what I want us to remember, especially as we lean into verses 19 through 25 and really the end of this argument. I want you to stick with it. I want you to read it and I want you to ask questions, but start high and go low. Don't start low and go high. It doesn't work very well when we do it that way. God is God and we are not. What we see in this passage is that he has supreme and sovereign authority over his creation. He is on his throne. You are not on his throne. You didn't vote him there and you won't vote him out. Next thing to remember, no one deserves to be saved. If God hardens some, he is not being unjust. Uh, this is exactly what we deserve. If, if we want justice, we get eternal judgment and condemnation. If, if we want justice, what we get is eternal separation from God. But in mercy, God initiated and intervened when we were happily rowing our boat to hell and drew us to himself, amen? He quickened our, our minds, or he quickened our heart, and he overrode our will and turned it to him. So if you are in Christ this morning, don't imagine that you initiated this, because that's what Paul is rejecting here. And he's not unjust any more than he or he's not unjust at all, because he's been doing this since Abraham. He's been doing this since Noah. He's been doing it since Adam and Eve. He's been doing it this entire time. It is an enduring principle. He is God and we are not. He's free to leave some in rebellion and give them exactly what they deserve. It's justice. But it's mercy when anyone, whenever he saves anyone. And let's, just a quick you know, I think it's easy to detach what that mercy and that justice cost. It, it cost his son on the cross, right? It wasn't just free at no expense on his behalf. No, he paid the price for your redemption. So again, let's not pretend you brought nothing to the table. The repentance and faith that you displayed were both gifts of God, and you exercised those gifts. You didn't have them in there before. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of the faith, right? You're not the author, nor are you the perfecter. We have no issue with the perfecter, but we have every issue with the author. This should produce absolute humility in us before a holy, righteous, and just God. Every one of us who is in Christ this morning should be asking, why me, Lord? Why? Why 
me? Why did you choose to have mercy and compassion on me and not somebody else? There are far better men and women that I know in my life who, have, who reject and continue to reject Jesus's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. They refuse to receive God's promise of eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And here I am preaching the good news. Here I am, a recipient of God's mercy and grace. Why? Why me? Well, I can tell you this. He didn't save you to sit in that chair. He saved you to go and pursue sinners with the gospel. And if you're not, if you're not sure if you're a recipient of God's mercy, I just this morning, like just stop and just ask the Lord to have mercy on you. Like the tax collector in Luke 18, he's, he's standing far off in, in the temple and he's saying, he says, has, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Not this long and elaborate prayer. Not the prayer like the Pharisee who's standing right there in the middle of the temple boasting about his religious works and his will. No, the tax collector says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, it's him who goes down to his house justified. If you're not sure if you're a recipient of God's mercy, this morning, call on him to have mercy on you. Now, if it doesn't depend on our will or our exertion or our work, just a reminder, that means that we should be incredibly humble people, shouldn't we? We should be incredibly humble people, not arrogant, not boastful. I'm not saying that there's uh, not a place for righteous anger. I'm not saying that there's not a place for a reasonable defense of the faith, of the hope that's in you, apologetics. I'm not saying that, there, that we shouldn't be um, sharp, that we shouldn't be aggressive or passionate or whatever the case may be. What I am saying is that we should be incredibly humble if we brought nothing to the table but received everything at the table. In these verses, they should strengthen our faith in God, right? Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 says, and we should be sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This sovereign God who freely chose you in Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He will never walk away. He will never walk away. No matter how far you run, no matter how bad you sin, this God who chose you in eternity past will see you into eternity future. Amen. But it is only through Christ Jesus. So if you're not sure whether or not you are in Christ, Call on him this morning to have mercy on you, a sinner. Turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin and promise of eternal life. And we get to celebrate this reality this morning with baptism.